The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to Curbsiders. I am not Dr. Matthew Franquato, as you can already tell. I'm Moni Amin, and we're back with another inpatient episode. Joined by my co-host, Dr. Meredith Trubit. How are you this evening? Doing pretty well. How are you? You know, I'm pumped, and uh, they're about to find out why. But that's not relevant right now. What is relevant is on tonight's show, we discuss endocrine emergencies, uh, a few that we haven't covered before. So DKA and hypercalcemia are episodes that we've already had. But tonight we do adrenal crisis, myxedema coma, and thyroid storm with our guest, Dr. Sarah Markley-Webster. And in just a minute, Meredith's going to tell you a little bit more. But first, will you please remind the good people in the audience what it is we do on this show? Sure, Moni. We are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Um, And tonight we have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Markley-Webster, Um, She is an endocrinologist at the Atlanta VA um, and affiliated with Emory University. She's a mom of two small human wild things and one gigantic furry beast, a.k.a. her dog, who we talk a little bit about in the episode. Her main interest is in trainee education at all levels, and she particularly likes to work with the internal medicine residents to teach the endocrine topics they need to know for the boards and also the ones they'll need to know for real life, which aren't always the same. She's a shy introvert, but it's excited to be on the podcast. And like Moni talked about, we're going to talk a little bit about thyroid storm and adrenal insufficiency and myxedema coma. So without further ado, let's get to it. Hey, Sarah, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, we're going to start with some rapid fire questions. And to start, we just can you give us your one liner? Yeah, so 35-year-old mom of two small Petri dishes and one extremely large beast of a dog that keep me busy and chronically exhausted. (laughs) What kind of dog? Great Pyrenees, and she's beautiful, and she knows it, and she gets into all kind of trouble because she knows she's beautiful. Oh, nice. I'm the dog person. Moni can't handle the big dogs. No, I cannot. That means she would be your best friend if you came over and she would never leave your side, ever. I prefer <laughs> Meredith's dog, Wrigley, who stays away with a, fi- like, she just stays, like, ten- away with a 10-foot pole. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, she has an antisocial personality. It's fine. That's uh, why we picked. <laughs> All right. So I think we'll kind of move through some of the openings questions kind of quickly, but um, I think the one that Moni and I really wanted to know from you, Sarah, was um, tell us a little bit of like an example of good advice or feedback that you've gotten throughout your career during your training. Yeah, I think the best was um, when one of my attendings, I was really struggling with a patient and I felt like we weren't connecting and we weren't getting through and we weren't hearing each other. And the attending was just like, you know, Sarah, not everybody's going to like you and not everybody's going to want to listen to you. And that's okay. And maybe sometimes we need to say, do we need to get a new doctor or do we need to get somebody else in here? Or do we need to just take a step back and realize that you're not going to be able to fix everything for everybody? Um, 
And I think that really helped me put some perspective in that my patients have a lot going on and I have a lot going on and we're not always going to be on the same page and that's okay. And maybe next time it'll be better or maybe next time it'll be worse, but that's not a reflection of me personally. So I think that really helped because I was always like, what am I doing wrong? What? It, why can't I get across or get through to this person? Um, and so it really helped me take a step back from that. I think that's really good advice. I think especially physicians, um, really are often people pleasing. And so it makes sense that we often feel like that is a breakdown on our end when in reality, it's just life. And so I think that's like one we haven't heard when we've done these shows so far. And it's really, that's really good advice. Moni, do you want to jump into our pick of the week? So this is a shared one just because it's very, very ridiculously exciting. So friends, uh, a couple weeks ago, I found this bright orange flyer on my door saying that there was this... It looked really sketch, I'm not going to lie. And it said that Netflix was making a show and that they wanted to potentially use my house for the show. Punchline, no, they did not use it. But they're using my neighbor's house. And the reason this is very exciting is who's involved with the project. So they are filming a series adaptation, miniseries of the book A Man in Full... Directed by Regina King, starring Jeff Daniels, Diane Lane, and Lucy Liu, and William Harper Jackson, which is from my favorite show, The Good Place. So, very exciting. And then today is happens to be filming day. So, if you hear some weird noises, it's kind of probably related to that. The best part is I've had Regina King sightings today. It's very exciting. I spoke to her. Do you want to tell everyone what you said to her? Not really, Meredith, but I feel like uh, <laughs> you're just setting me up. So, you know, what I had to tell Regina was, uh, well, first I said, welcome to our humble abodes, plural. And then I just told her it was very exciting. And then that was the end of the conversation. And she continued to be a director of a multi-million dollar show on Netflix. Um, I did, Meredith pointed out very kindly that I, I made it several hours before doing something so ridiculous. Yeah, Moni kept it together until she didn't. Yep. And honestly, I'm not going to lie, we're going to try to get through this so that we can catch a glimpse of Jeff Daniels, because he is the star that will be in the scene that is being filmed at my neighbor's house. And there's a very awesome group thread with my friends uh, with pictures of us being creepy. So should we jump in? I think we're ready. I think we need to take it to our first case from Cashlack. This episode is brought to you by locumstory.com. Hey, have you ever considered a different way of practicing medicine? Maybe you're burned out, you need a change of pace, or you're just looking to supplement your income. Well, locum tenens, that might be the solution for you. And if you're considering locum tenens, either full-time or on the side, you probably have a question or two, or probably you got a lot more than that. Well, fortunately, locumstory.com has the answers that you need, and it's packed with unbiased information and advice from physicians like you. Locumstory.com has nothing to sell. It's simply a resource for information where you're going to find handy tools that let you see locums trends for your specialty, compare different locums agencies, and there's even a quiz to help decide if locums is right for you. And the Locum Story blog features content and perspectives from actual locums physicians who have firsthand locums experience. 
locumstory.com is the perfect place to start if you want to learn more about locums. So visit locumstory.com and get started today. This episode is brought to you by Pattern Life. An audience, if you're like me, Maybe you're somewhat of an amateur finance nerd. Maybe you care about securing your own future, maybe the future of your family. So whether you're a parent in training or an attending parent with a specialty in advanced diaper procedures and swaddling, you likely understand the value of consistency. And throughout the throes of parenthood, you also have probably learned that having a family isn't cheap. And if you were to become disabled, you'd lose your ability to work along with your income. And without consistent income, the future your family, your lifestyle, and your finances are all going to be on the line. With Pattern's true own occupation disability insurance, you'll receive monthly benefit checks for the duration of your disability, and you're even able to pursue another career path while doing so. Request your free quotes at patternlife.com slash curbsiders. That's patternlife.com slash curbsiders. Today we got Mr. Jerry first. He's a 68-year-old man with a past medical history of um, HFPF, asthma, type 1 diabetes, hypoadrenalism, and he presents the emergency department with one-day history of abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting. So, going to be real honest here, the hypoadrenalism I know is something important that I should know we should think about and do something about, and it's probably relevant to this case. But um, I think we should start by just like maybe having a brief conversation on definitions of hypoadrenalism versus like adrenal crisis and what those differences are and how that might reframe how you're thinking about these patients. Yeah. So hypoadrenalism or adrenal insufficiency, depending on who you're talking to, is just the person doesn't have the ability to make cortisol, right? Whether it's a pituitary problem or an adrenal problem, their body is not functioning the way it should. And typically for a lot of people, it's more of a chronic issue. And so they're taking hydrocortisone or something like that as an outpatient. Um, But when they come into the hospital, we get really concerned about adrenal crisis, which is where they could start having organ failure. And they usually have hypotension and they're pretty sick. And it has a high mortality. Um, Some studies state up to 40% if we don't uh, treat or identify adrenal crisis early. And so whenever you have somebody who has any kind of adrenal insufficiency coming into the hospital, you always have to keep in the back of your mind, well, could this be adrenal crisis that's going on? And do I need to give them these high doses of steroids or do I need to treat this? Or is this something different? Is this an infection? Is this sepsis? Is this something else? But anybody coming in with a history of adrenal insufficiency or hypoadrenalism should, you should have it in the back of your mind that maybe this is adrenal crisis. Thinking about kind of that definition is all that's important for us to know kind of just that that is the lack of cortisol in the system or is there more to the pathophys that matters kind of like when you're thinking about that spectrum at all? It matters a lot in the outpatient setting when I'm evaluating somebody for adrenal insufficiency because I'm also looking at their mineralocorticoids and is this primary versus secondary because primary is much more likely to have a mineralocorticoid deficiency where they're going to be hyponatremic and hyperkalemic and secondary not so much. When they're coming into the hospital though, it's kind of moot 
because if they're coming into the hospital, they're going to need to be treated for the adrenal insufficiency. And usually the doses of medications we use in the hospital cover both my glucocorticoids and my mineralocorticoids. So it doesn't really matter that they don't have one or both or what have you, because I'm going to be end up treating them either way. I think that you actually covered a couple of the points that I think we were, ho- we were trying to get to next, but we're going to take it back to Mr. Jerry for a second and kind of hit on the things that you did maybe in a little bit more formal way. So he's on further history, he's worsening fatigue over the last week in conjunction with that angio vomiting and abdominal pain. And his initial vitals are significant for a temp of 38.5, heart rate 95, BP of 95 over 55, and he's saturating well on room air. His exam is notable for abdominal tenderness, but otherwise reassuring. And his labs are notable for he's mildly hyponatremic, uh, sodium of 130, K of 5.9, calcium 11, glucose 75. And his CBC is notable for a white blood cell count of 10.7. You mentioned previously about, you know, we're thinking about infection, sepsis, adrenal insufficiency. And I guess, in a way, I guess I'm asking the threshold because I know I'm going to be pumping him full of fluids full of antibiotics, because I'm, you know, just sort of going to cover that base. But, you know, how, what should my threshold for these high-dose steroids be? Pretty low. So when I have patients with adrenal insufficiency, what I tell them at home is if you have a mild illness, like you have a sore throat, you have a runny nose, something like that, I want you to double up on your dose. And if you have a fever above 38 Celsius, I want you to triple up your dose. And if you have nausea or vomiting where you can't keep down your pills, I want you to come on into the hospital so that I can give you IV hydrocortisone. And so when I have somebody coming into the hospital, that's a pretty big stressor in and of itself, not even including whatever the precipitant is that's bringing them into the hospital, the infection or the lack of glucocorticoids. And so when I have somebody coming into the hospital, I have a low threshold to at least triple their dose. But if I'm seeing things like hypotension, I'm seeing the nausea, I'm seeing vomiting, even though it might be sepsis, maybe they ate some bad chicken or something the other day, um, I still have a low threshold because the risk of not treating them is so much higher than the risk of giving them that 100 milligrams of IV hydrocortisone. And I really don't want to miss that person who's going to be in adrenal crisis and end up not treating them and have them be in the ICU for a couple of days when they would have had a much faster turnaround if I'd just given them the high-dose steroids. And I think I missed it. How much did you say you usually do? Like, Typically load somebody up. So we'll give them 100 of IV hydrocortisone, and then you can do something like 50 milligrams IV every six hours. And depending on the response kind of depends on how long you keep going with this. If they turn it around in a day, well, then I'm going to start tapering fast. And we'll go to 50Q8, then 50Q12, and we'll drop it down fast. If they're not really turning around, I'm going to keep going with that 50Q6 while we're trying to figure out what else is going on. Do they have some underlying infection? Is there a pneumonia here that's contributing to this? But what else is happening? And with doses that high, if I give more than 50 milligrams of hydrocortisone in a day, I'm hitting both their glucocorticoid receptors and their mineralocorticoid receptors. And so this is why we don't have to worry about things like fluid recortisone in the hospital, because I'm typically giving more than that 50 milligrams of hydrocortisone per day. And so even if they had primary adrenal insufficiency, I'd be covering um, their mineralocorticoids anyway. 
And so we don't have stress dose fruit or cortisone or anything like that. It's just the hydrocort um, that we go with. And that's why we prefer hydrocortisone for stress dose steroids because it has the glucocorticoid and the mineralocorticoid. Something like dexamethasone doesn't have that. And so you, you want to stay away from something like dex. Um, the high doses there are usually used for like brain edema and things like that, but not so much for adrenal insufficiency. That's helpful. And I, I'm not sure I ever remember that. So I'm glad that you said that out loud. So hopefully it'll stick auditorily for me. Uh, the part about mineralocorticoids and glucocorticoids being, you know, in cortisone and then remembering that like dexamethasone doesn't have that, uh, I think is something that I probably don't think enough about when I'm thinking about steroids. And, you know, stepping back just for a second with sepsis, adrenal crisis, those things I think kind of fit. Is there anything else that you think about outside of those two when you see this in someone that has a known history of hypoadrenalism? I mean, really, it could be some something just as mild as they've been chronically underdosed and they've had a mild stressor, something that we wouldn't even think twice about. Like they got into a fight with a family member or they had a bad day at work, right? So people who have been kind of borderline or marginal with their adrenal insufficiency and haven't been dosed well can actually tip into adrenal crisis with just minor stressors. So it doesn't even have to be something big like sepsis. Um, it's what we always worry about, but sometimes we really don't find much because it was a pretty mild stressor. So we look, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're always going to get the answer, which is really frustrating when you're like, I need to know what caused this so that I can tell you not to do it again so that this doesn't happen again. Is there a set like dose that someone is typically getting in the outpatient setting? Or when you say under dose, is that, is that because everyone's kind of on different doses? Yeah, so the dose for hydrocortisone is very much dependent on somebody's body surface area. And so standard replacement doses are 7.5 milligrams to 10 milligrams per meter squared. And so if you think about the average U.S. male, he's going to have a BSA of about 1.9 to 2 meters squared. And so you would expect that he's going to need somewhere in the range of 15 to 20 milligrams of hydrocortisone per day. And because if you remember way back to physiology, we know that cortisol has diurnal variation and I get that giant spike in the morning and then I get a milder spike in the afternoon before supper. We'll usually split that dose up like two thirds or three quarters in the morning and the rest around four o'clock. So if we're going to give him 20 milligrams, I'd give 15 milligrams at breakfast and five milligrams in the evening and then see how they do. If they're still having orthostasis or they're having abdominal pain and nausea, we'll bump the dose up. And so we'll try maybe 15 and 10 and see if that helps. Or if they say it's wearing off early in the afternoon, we might do 10, 5, and 5 to try to get their symptoms under control. And so usually they're having a lot of discussion with their endocrinologist about how are their symptoms doing and are their symptoms under good control. I just had somebody come in the other day and he was having nausea and all the time. And GI had done this million dollar workup on him and he just needed an extra five milligrams of hydrocortisone and his nausea was completely gone. And so he'd been just mildly underdosed, but he would have been somebody who a small stressor could have tipped him into crisis and he would have ended up in the emergency department. And along those lines about dosing um, in, in the outpatient setting, just so that I hear it, is there a need for prophylaxis in the situation of physiologic levels of steroids. I, I, I know you're laughing because 
we we hospitalists just cannot seem to remember or keep it straight. So please help. No, I actually really like that question because I was giving a lecture on this the other day and somebody asked me, they go, at what point do you need prophylaxis? And I was like, well, not my doses usually. Like, that's a great question for ID because I'm always getting the steroids down and I don't want you on those high doses. Um, but when you're thinking about prophylaxis, you don't have to do it for the physiologic replacement doses of hydrocortisone. So you're looking at those 15 to 20 milligrams. That's about what your body would make normally. And so that's not immunosuppressing you. But if you get up to higher doses, and so there's really good data that doses above 20 milligrams of prednisone, which um, five milligrams of prednisone is the equivalent of 20 of hydrocort. So we'd be talking about 80 of hydrocort. Doses above 20 milligrams of prednisone for more than three weeks are sufficient to immunosuppress you. And that's when you should be looking for PJP prophylaxis um, and then glucocorticoid-induced osteoporosis prophylaxis and things like that, but not usually at your physiologic doses for adrenal insufficiency. Now, I'm pretty sure all endocrinologists have those few adrenal insufficiency patients who just make their own hydrocortisone doses and they're on these sky high doses and we can't convince them to come down, but that shouldn't be the average person with adrenal insufficiency. So now let's like go back to Mr. Jerry. And I think the, the way we framed like this case so far was like, Hey, this Mr. Jerry's coming in, you know, he has this history of hypoadrenalism. So like, kind of how do you deal with that initially? But let's say he doesn't have that known history um, and but sort of comes in the same way. So like still coming in with nausea, vomiting, you're worried that this could be like sepsis. Um, kind of how do you I mean, we talked earlier that like the adrenal crisis should kind of always be on your differential for these patients just in case it's happening. But kind of what's your like telltale sign? Are there things that you're looking for on there like history, physical or are there specific labs that might point you more into that direction, like as you watch their course go? Yeah. So some of it would be history dependent. So if you also said Mr. Jerry had a history of rheumatoid arthritis or sarcoid and had been on prednisone for weeks and had recently tapered off, well, adrenal insufficiency would rise much higher to, in my differential. But if he's just, like we said, heart failure, asthma, um, maybe not. Now, the type 1 diabetes puts you in kind of a tricky spot because he has autoimmune disease, and autoimmune diseases tend to flock together. And so it's highly likely that he could also develop an autoimmune adrenalitis that ends up with adrenal insufficiency. So if I have somebody who has autoimmune disease already, and they're coming in nausea, vomiting, hypotensive, hyponatremic, hyperkalemic, you've got to have, could this be a new onset adrenal insufficiency? And this is adrenal crisis and I need to treat this. So there are some things in the history that I look for that make me think about adrenal insufficiency. But if I'm getting that hypotension, hyponatremia, hyperkalemia, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, I mean, it's always going to be in the back of our mind, right? Because it's a can't-miss diagnosis. And so the question I usually get is, how do I tell the difference? Like, how do I diagnose this? Do I just give Pete? Do I just hand out the steroids and put them on and you figure it out later? Or what do I do here? And so I think that's a little tricky because it really depends on when you're looking at Mr. Jerry, how sick do you think he is? 
If you think you can wait an hour before giving steroids, well, go ahead and run a stim test and give him that 250 micrograms of ACTH and get a cortisol 30 and 60 minutes later and see can his adrenals function. It's not a perfect test, but it gives you some idea. But if he's looking pretty sick and you're worried, go ahead and give him the steroids. We can always figure out if he has adrenal insufficiency down the road and two or three days of high dose steroids aren't going to cause him osteoporosis or give him PJP or anything like that. And so we can always come back and figure out if he has adrenal insufficiency. So if it's on your differential and you've got a suspicion, go ahead and treat it and we can figure out later whether or not he's actually got it. Because it didn't come back come up earlier with the patient with a known history of hypoadrenalism, I think I might know the answer. But I'm wondering, this is the first time that you've mentioned the stem test. So is this something that you don't even need to do in a patient with hypoadrenalism or just um, it might be a silly question. Yeah. So typically in somebody who has a known diagnosis of adrenal insufficiency, somebody's done some amount of workup, right? So they've gotten either that morning cortisol that's so low that you don't have to do a stim test, and that cutoff varies a little bit for primary versus secondary, or they've done the stim test and the patient didn't stim appropriately. And so somebody with a known diagnosis, we've done that workup, and we've probably challenged that workup a couple of times because all endocrinologists doubt each other and no one believes what somebody else says. And so if I have somebody coming to me and they're like, yeah, I've had adrenal insufficiency for 10 years. Really? Have you? Let's let's double check that. Maybe you've had recovery. So usually we're doing stim tests not infrequently on them anyways to see if they've had any recovery of their adrenal glands depending on the cause. So it's mostly if I have a new diagnosis or I think somebody might have been misdiagnosed that I'm going for that stim test. And it doesn't always end up being needed. You can use an 8 a.m. cortisol. And if that 8 a.m. cortisol is really low, you can avoid it sometimes. But for a lot of people, they're not coming in at 8 o'clock in the morning. And so my random cortisol level isn't particularly useful. I can only use it as a rural out test. So that random cortisol above 18 is what the guidelines say. There's some new data that says maybe 14 could be okay. We say standardly 18 says, yeah, you don't have adrenal insufficiency. You can make cortisol. But if they're anything else, you're kind of stuck doing that stim test. So you might as well just start with the stim test so that you're not wasting time. And I assume that regardless of whether you are, you know that this is adrenal insufficiency or not, the steroid dosing that we talked about before is like the same across the board. Yeah, it's the same across the board. So when in doubt, when you're worried for adrenal crisis, you're going with those high doses of steroids just to cover your bases. And in terms of treatments, are there any other treatments that are like beneficial from like a supportive standpoint that like us as a hospitalist would feel really confident in giving? So... Like Moni said already, the things that you'd already be doing, right? Lots of fluids. These people tend to end up really volume down. And so you're going to be giving a lot of fluids. You're going to be covering with antibiotics while you try to figure out if they have sepsis. Um, Typically, a lot of the electrolyte abnormalities are going to resolve with the fluids and the glucocorticoids. And so like hypercalcemia is typically just going to go away when you treat the adrenal insufficiency and you give the glucocorticoids and with the fluids. So it's not necessarily something you have to focus in on and be like, oh man, I need to treat this calcium of 11. It's going to get better with the treatment of the adrenal insufficiency. So it's mostly 
the fluids, the antibiotics, giving the glucocorticoids and trying to figure out what precipitated this. And how fast do you typically see that resolution of their electrolyte abnormalities like next day or does it take a few days? It kind of depends on how severe they are. So somebody with a sodium of 130, I expect I'd see pretty rapid recovery in that, maybe in 24 to 36 hours or so. But I expect that I'd see that normalize pretty quick. Um, it also depends on if they've got something else going on, right? So if they've got a pneumonia that precipitated this, well, there might actually be some underlying SIADH from that pneumonia that's contributing to the hyponatremia as well. And so maybe it wouldn't recover quite as fast as I would expect. So a little bit of that depends on what else is going on. But if it's just a, they were marginally dosed and they had some mild stressor that tipped them over, they usually turn around really fast. Okay. And kind of along those lines, I kind of think about this in terms of discharge, because you're probably checking the meds a little bit more as you're discharging the patient. So let's say Mr. Jerry's feeling better. And he just wants to leave, like he just keeps pestering you. And he's overall improved. So what's your you kind of mentioned that if they're getting better, you taper pretty quickly. What sort of things are you looking for to be like, okay, they're ready to transition home. And then like, what does that look like? Yeah. So usually, like you said, they're telling you I'm ready to go home. Like I'm feeling better. I'm feeling back to myself. I'm ready. And it kind of depends on how close I've gotten them back to their home dose, right? Because I did 50Q6, then usually it's 50Q8, 50Q12. I might go to 25Q12. And my goal is trying to get back down to like 15 and 5. And so I might go 20 and 20, and then 15 and 15, and 15 and 10, and 15 and 5. So it kind of depends on where I am in this. If I'm at 20 and 20 and they're saying they're ready to go, I'm going to say, all right, tomorrow you're going to take 15 and 15. The next day you're going to take 15 and 10. And the next day you're going to be back on your 15 and 5. And we review the sick day dosing every... I tell my patients this should be reviewed with you every like healthcare contact you get because it's so important. And it's the any sore throat, any runny nose, double up your dose. Any fever above 38 Celsius, triple up that dose. And if you can't keep the pills down, please come in sooner rather than later. Don't wait. The other thing I always check before discharge is do they have a medical alert bracelet or dog tag? Because if they're in a car accident or they're ever found down, EMS needs to know that this person needs hydrocortisone ASAP. And they often have it in the ambulance and they can give it en route to the hospital. So I always check that my patient has some identification on them that will tell emergency workers, hey, you've got to give this person hydrocortisone. Great. I think you covered the counseling pretty well, actually. So it seems like increasing the dose, telling them sort of when to increase the dose in the setting of any sort of stressor. And then, you know, making sure they have a medical alert bracelet. Are there any other sort of things that you like to tell patients as they're, you know, heading out the door to help prevent them from having to come back with this? Don't run out. That's the often one of the big ones is don't wait until you have two days left. Call me for a refill because I don't know that it'll get to you in time. Um, and so I often also make sure that when I'm prescribing the tablets. I'm not prescribing just the number of tablets they need for maintenance. I'm usually throwing in an extra 50 or 70 tablets for a 90-day supply so that if they have those stressors, they have extra on hand and they don't have to worry about running out. And so I usually want to make sure they've got more than what they need. 
because I'd always rather they take the tablet than not have the tablet and end up in the hospital. And I think this is intuitive, but I think we made this point a lot in the Onc Emergency episode two. As the hospitalist, I'm not doing any of this alone, correct? Like, these are not decisions I'm going to have to make. No. Mm-mm. Endocrine is always more than happy and uh, would actually probably be a little bit irritated if you weren't calling us about these patients and saying, hey, I have somebody with adrenal insufficiency coming in sick. That's a, mm-hmm, yeah, I'm going to go see them right now because I want to make sure that we're on top of all of the steroids and we've given the right amount of fluids and we've got the antibiotics. And um, most endocrinologists are pretty obsessive about things. And so adrenal insufficiency is one of those things we we like to stick our fingers in and Sometimes you might just find us there, even if you haven't called us. I was going to say, I'm not going to lie. I feel like you guys have a bat signal or something when your patients come in. And uh, I'm very grateful uh, every time. Uh, Many of them have our direct cell phones or a way to send us a message to say, I'm in the hospital so that we can be like, I am coming. I will see you. I will be there. Um, So definitely for my adrenal insufficiency patients, they know how to reach me. And then I just insert myself, regardless of whether I'm asked or not. (laughs) Appreciate the honesty. Um, So I think we can recap a little bit, um, because I think we touched on like a lot of really helpful information. I think to start, you know, broadly, we're talking about adrenal insufficiency and adrenal crisis, which is for us in the hospital really just significant for the. Um, lack of cortisol that these patients have. And if you have any concern kind of for this happening, whether it is they have a known history or enough like clinical clues in the emergency department to trigger you um, to not hesitate in starting the high dose steroids. Um, If you think the patient, if the patient doesn't have a known history and you think that they can tolerate doing a test, go for it. But otherwise, um, if you have any doubts kind of just go ahead and start the steroids and figure it out um, on the back end and I think that's kind of the high points that we hit Moni do you have anything else to add one of the things I liked that you kind of mentioned Sarah when we're getting ready to send people home is kind of let the patient be the guide there's no need to you know force the issue about tapering them if they're already feeling better and their vitals and labs all look good so I think that's a good uh, thing to keep in mind because I think we all get a little cautious sometimes and listening to the patient can be helpful shocking (laughs) anything you want to add to our recap nope I think you guys hit all of the big key points um I should mention that there is the option for stress dose steroids that you give continuously because there's relatively new data that came out that said maybe stress dose steroids, maybe they have a period where their levels still fall below physiology. And so there is an option that you can give continuous hydrocortisone through an IV and it's 200 milligrams over a 24 hour period and it's just a stable dose. But none of the hospitals that I've worked at have been able to do that successfully. So it's not something we typically reach for because pharmacy is usually able to hand out that 100 or 50 of IV hydrocort, no troubles. And the delay in trying to have them figure out how to make the continuous hydrocortisone typically gives me a little bit of the heebie-jeebies. And so I just go for the, yeah, just give the IV 100 right now. And that way I know they've got something. But there is an option to do continuous hydrocortisone um, if it's available at your institution. Great. 
I think we are ready to go to our next case at Cashlack. Miss Nancy, she's 78, has a history of hypothyroidism, HEFREF, bipolar. She's been stable on her lithium for years, and she recently got started on amiodarone for AFib. She was brought into the emergency department by her family. They said that she's been disoriented, confused. Her vitals initially are notable for hypothermia. Her temp is 35. Her heart rate's 49. Blood pressure is 80 over 40. Starting to panic a little bit. And her oxygen saturation is 91%. Her exam's notable for being lethargic. She's got some rails bibasally, and she has decreased deep tendon reflexes. Kind of similar to our last case, with the known history of hypothyroidism, I feel like myxedema coma comes to the differential a lot faster in this situation. But one of the things I don't think I've ever fully appreciated is that there's a spectrum from hypothyroidism to myxedema coma. So what kind of helps you distinguish that and kind of from physical exam and that sort of stuff? Yeah. So not going to lie, I get called not infrequently and they'll be like, Dr. Markley, this person's TSH is the highest I've ever seen. It is 200. I'm worried about myxedema coma. And what I usually tell people is, if you saw this patient in your office and you didn't have labs, would you be admitting them to the hospital or would you be sending them home? Because if you're going to send them home, they don't have myxedema coma. But if you're looking at putting them in the hospital, well, they very well might. And so that's kind of what my first cut point is. If they look clinically well, this is not myxedema coma because myxedema coma is a clinical diagnosis. It's not a biochemical diagnosis. It's not a lab diagnosis. It's a clinical diagnosis. And so it is your patient has altered mental status and you think this could be due to lack of thyroid hormone. And yeah, oftentimes you'll see things like hypothermia and bradycardia and hypoventilation, um, hyponatremia. You'll have these other triggers that give you support. They also typically happen to be older females in the wintertime. Um, and so you'll kind of have this supporting information that says, yeah, this could very well be myxedema coma. And at the very least, there's no harm in treating it like it is because again, like all of the endocrine emergencies, myxedema coma has a pretty high mortality rate if we don't catch it and treat it. And so if it's crossing the back of your mind, it's worthwhile going down that path to see if it is and treating um, accordingly. I think the take-home point here is coma is in the name, people. So, uh, <laughs> yes. Let's... Yeah. Now, I have also had people tell me, I don't think this person has myxedema coma because they can talk to me. They're really slow and they're very confused, but they can talk to me. Well, the coma part is really just their mental status is not at baseline. So you can be lethargic, um, not answering questions well, not comatose and still have myxedema coma, but you're altered in some way. But yeah, a lot of them are not, not really giving you much. Okay. All right. I'll stop being snarky about that. Uh, the other piece to hypothyroidism or myxedema coma that I found to be interesting is, if I recall correctly, we maybe don't have the best understanding of the pathophys of this, or do we? Or maybe I just don't. <laughs> so, all right. I tell people the thyroid is kind of the gas pedal of 
or the, well, TSH is the gas pedal of the body and thyroid, uh, thyroid hormone is the gas. So you need it in order to maintain regular metabolic functions, to be able to control heart muscle contractions, regular muscle contractions, neuronal conduction, things like that. So if I don't have any, well, nothing runs. And so I, that's how, why I get the bradycardia because I don't have anything stimulating my heart to beat faster. And I get hypothermic because I'm shutting down my basal, basal metabolic rate. I'm not metabolizing things to generate heat. And so some of it makes sense, right? And when I start shutting things down because I don't have enough thyroid hormone to run my body, that's when I start getting that organ failure. And the end organ damage and the organ failure is what I see as the hallmarks of myxedema coma, right? When I'm having my brain start to fail you. That's why my brain start to fail. That's why I start to get that altered mental status and heading towards coma. So it's a, I don't have any gas in my body. Nothing is running, nothing is working and everything's going to start shutting down. And so I need to fill up the gas tank for this patient again. I guess like keeping all of that in mind, right? So you're thinking about all of this from kind of how the thyroid is affecting the body. We've established that this is entirely like a clinical diagnosis. The thing that I think I struggle with is that when I think of altered mental status as like such a key finding for it, um, I just feel like that's a huge differential that you're actually like thinking through. Are there any like scoring systems or any other like clinical aids to kind of guide you to say, yeah, this is more likely related to, you know, their hypothyroidism and this could be myxedema coma versus something else that they also have. Yeah. And so I think there are some clinical findings that can really help point you in that direction. And so one is their speech changes. And it's really hard to describe if you've never heard a myxedema speech, but it's kind of slow, thick, slurred speech. Like they've got a bunch of gumballs or something in their mouth and they're just not able to get the words out well and you can understand them with a lot of work, but it's work. They don't sound right. And their family members confirm this is not how they talk. And then you've got things like their reflexes, right? Which might not just be hyporeflexia, but a lot of that is just delayed relaxation of the reflex. That usually is a pretty good yeah, this is something going on with low thyroid levels here because usually we're not having that delay in the relaxation. It's fast up, fast down. And that can be pretty subtle sometimes. Uh, it's much more obvious when they're truly in mixed edema, but sometimes it's best elucidated when you actually put your finger over the biceps when you're tapping so that you can feel the delay in the relaxation. They've got typically the mixed edema, right? So they have edema that's non-pitting that you're seeing. And then they've got their vitals that are all wonky, right? They're hypothermic, they're bradycardic, they can be hypotensive, um, and their electrolytes are getting all wonky too with hyponatremia and things like that. And so it's kind of looking at the whole constellation of the patient because, yeah, there's a lot that could be altered mental status, right? Could be infection, encephalitis, other things. Um, but if it's on there, it's a fairly easy treat, and they should start getting better pretty rapidly. Um, typically, people turn around within a day. I had somebody turn around within a couple of hours after he got his levothyroxine, and he was like, I feel like a new person. Mm, I believe it, man. I feel like a lot of endocrinologists might not even say, you know, this might not be myxedema, but there's no harm 
and kind of giving them that extra dose of levothyroxine just to make sure and to get them bumped up to make sure that myxedema is not contributing to any of this, right? Kind of similar to adrenal insufficiency. It might be sepsis, but the risk of not treating adrenal insufficiency way outweighs the risk of just treating. And so when I have myxedema coma popping on my radar, I think most endocrinologists will lean towards, let's just go ahead and give them a dose of the IV levothyroxine, fill up the tank a little bit, take this issue off the table. So I think that's a good segue. Let's talk a little bit about the thyroid replacement and treatment. Um, Where do you start? Yeah, so the guidelines say we should start with IV levothyroxine. And the reason for IV is because these patients might have gut edema, and so they're the bioavailability of levothyroxine and the absorption are not great as it is, right? It's super finicky. And so if I also have gut edema compounding that, I just want to absorb I want to avoid any absorption issues. And so we'll give IV levothyroxine, and it's usually a loading dose of 200 to 400 micrograms. If my patient is younger, doesn't have a lot of comorbidities, I'm going to err on the high side of that. If it's a little old lady, or they've got some heart history, I'm going to err maybe on the lower side of that with a 200 microgram dose. And so I'm going to give them a loading dose right now. And then what I'm going to end up doing is I'm going to be giving them every day after that um, 75% of their oral dose in IV form. And so that's going to get their levels up. And you can watch things to make sure this is working. So you can get a free T4 level every three days or so, and you can see that their levels are coming up. Typically in mixed edema, they've got low or undetectable free T4 levels. And so you can actually watch and say, yes, we are in fact getting these levels up. We're treating them appropriately. There is some consideration that you can maybe give liothyronine or T3 as well in addition to levothyroxine. And most of us are really comfortable with levothyroxine. We have a lot of patients who have hypothyroidism and we've given levothyroxine a lot. But liothyronine is not something we have as much experience with. And this is a pretty weak recommendation that the ATA gives. But there's some concern that in myxedema coma, maybe you don't convert T4 to T3 as well in the periphery. And T3 is the active form, so maybe we need to give a little bit of T3 up front to kind of get over the hump of the myxedema, get everything working again, um, and then we can let it go. So there's some thought that you should be giving 50 to 20 of liothyronine in addition to the levothyroxine um, when you're first thinking about myxedema coma, just to make sure that they have some T3 to get things started. I was going to say the other thing for myxedema coma is you always have to think about do they have concomitant adrenal issues, right? Lots of things in endocrine tend to go together. And so what you would hate to do is to have somebody who has myxedema coma and they also have adrenal insufficiency, right? They have autoimmune adrenal insufficiency and they had autoimmune hypothyroidism and I don't treat their adrenal insufficiency because if I try to kickstart my metabolism and I don't have any glucocorticoids on board, I'm going to go into adrenal crisis. So we often recommend that you give people um, stress dose glucocorticoids as well to make sure you're not missing an adrenal insufficiency, even if they don't have a known history of AI. And we can figure out later, do they need to stay on the glucocorticoids or not? 
but when you're treating for the myxedema, giving them that stress dose glucocorticoids is kind of covering your bases to make sure you're not going to tip somebody into adrenal crisis right after they've been in myxedema coma. And I think you already said this part too, but I guess you can have variable lengths of improvement. Like some people will improve pretty quickly and then some it might be a little bit slower kind of depending on severity that they came in on. Yeah. So my little old lady who's got a lot of other comorbidities and has a pneumonia that precipitated her myxedema coma, I expect she's going to take a little longer to turn around than my 40-year-old gentleman who just hasn't been taking his levothyroxine because he didn't think he needed it and he got a cold and I give him his levothyroxine and he turns around in less than a day. Um, So it just kind of depends on what else is going on with the patient and what's their baseline health for how rapidly they turn around. But usually it's pretty quick. Yeah, I think I remember in training at Cashlack that I had a patient, I think it was a communal patient, like everyone was trying to figure out what was going on with the patient. And I remember when some, there was like a eureka moment or something by one of my co-interns and they went down the myxedema treatment pathway and just like miraculous the patient had like not been interactive for a while a hot while and just it was incredible so yeah yeah and it's amazing how people can compensate too we've got people walking around with tshs of 200s feeling fine and then you get them some levothyroxine and they're like oh i'm a different person and you're like oh yeah yeah you are it's kind of that spectrum that we were talking about Okay, so I guess I'm curious now, you know, you mentioned in the adrenal crisis part where, you know, you kind of listen to the patient about when they're ready to go home. What does that transition look like for patients with myxedema coma in terms of their levothyroxine? And what what's your, are you a little bit more conservative here? Or are you kind of similar, like listen to the patient? I actually think I'm probably less conservative here than I should be. And when I was a fellow, I would get into some trouble for this because I'd be like, ah, he's talking, he's eating, he looks better. Let's just go to PO. We're good. Um, And my attending would be like, what, what? I No, I don't think so. Um, So I still think it's a lot based on the patient and how the patient is doing, right? If they're talking to you normally, they're feeling better. I don't see any reason to continue with IV levothyroxine, right? If they're not having any edema that you're seeing, it's fine to switch back to PO. The downside to PO in the hospital is timing it is a huge pain, right? Because nursing wants to give all of the medications at the same time, which is typically right around breakfast time, and levothyroxine likes none of those things. And so you're usually timing it to be given at like four or five in the morning. And then the patient's mad because they're getting woken up at four o'clock in the morning to take their levothyroxine and then they can't fall back asleep. Um, So I don't think there's really a right or wrong answer to how you transition. If it's easiest to keep on the levothyroxine, IV, fine. Um, I would say if they've been in the hospital long enough that their free T4 levels have normalized, you definitely don't need to be on the IV anymore. But it is easier from a nursing and patient perspective to give the IV because you don't have to worry about the absorption that you have to worry about with the oral. And in addition to telling them that you will be seeing them in clinic, what other anticipatory guidance do you give them in terms of avoiding it or, you know, all those sorts of things? Yeah. So it's mostly, again, take your levothyroxine, right? And One of the weird things about levothyroxine that doesn't hold true for a lot of our other medicines is if you miss a dose, you can double up the next day. 
It's all about the number of tablets per week because the half-life is so long. And in fact, if you're really poorly adherent with this medicine, I can have you walk into my clinic every Monday and do directly observed therapy of levothyroxine. And I will hand you all seven tablets and you will take them in front of me. And then I will get your TSH levels and show you that it really is just that you're not able to take the medication correctly. Um, so it's a lot of just take the medication. And if you missed it, you forgot it, double up your dose. And I do have some people who take the medicine all on Saturday and they give me a little bit of palpitations because if they ever forget to take it on Saturday, they're going to be in much bigger trouble than if they miss one dose, which is why we tell people to take it every day. But it's all about getting in the correct dose per week, the correct number of tablets per week. And so that's what I usually talk to people about is you've really got to get this in. If you have to put it on your bedside table, so it's the first thing you see when you wake up, put it on your bedside table. Take it the moment you open your eyes. Then go shower, get ready for the day. By that time, you can take your other medicines and you can eat your breakfast. And then you're not having to worry about the absorption issues that come if they're taking it with calcium or iron or dairy products. Um, or you can take it right before you go to bed as long as bedtime is two hours after your last meal, right? So again, you can have it on your nightstand table. You're turning out the lights. You pop that super tiny pill of levothyroxine. It's itty bitty and you just take it, but you have to take it. Do we need to set alarms in your phone? Sure. Do we need to have pill boxes where your family comes and helps you if patient's struggling with memory impairment? Sure, but we've got to get it in and you've got to get it in consistently. And so that's the big thing that I really stress with patients and their families when they come in with myxedema is you really have to take this medication. You don't want to be back here again. And just outside of taking medications, any other triggers they need to be aware of? That's typically the big thing is they haven't okay. been taking it or they've been marginally adherent with it. And again, they're kind of on that cusp of they're able to hang in. They're compensating just barely, but any small thing tips them over. So the biggest thing is just getting the medicine in and making sure that they're following up to make sure their doses are correct. Um, Cause we definitely have people who are taking the same dose they were taking 10 years ago. And you're like, that's not anywhere close to the right dose for you anymore. You've gained a hundred pounds. We need to fix this. Okay. I think we've covered a lot of ground here. So I think it's probably we're due for another recap for this section. You know, the first thing that comes to mind is the clinical diagnosis piece. And I don't think I had realized that, you know, there's like kind of a characteristic speech change that happens as a, potentially as a part of the the altered mental status. So that was that was kind of interesting. And then, you know, the other piece uh, in terms of treatment you know, IV is done instead of oral because there can be a fair amount of gut edema. And so that kind of sidesteps that part and gets the drug to the patient faster. Anything else, Meredith? No, I thought the other interesting part was just because we had just talked about adrenal insufficiency, kind of throwing on the steroids. Um, because if you start, I think as Sarah said, like increasing kind of the gas in their body, they're going to need something to keep them going and everything like that with the cortisol. You'll find with uh, endocrine and endocrine emergencies, as long as it's not DKA, almost universally we're advocating for throwing steroids at people. Yeah, the autoimmune, it seems like autoimmune diseases kind of run in, run in gangs almost, yeah. run together. They definitely do. And so always when somebody has any autoimmune disease, you're keeping thyroid, autoimmune thyroid, autoimmune adrenal, kind of in the back of your head, autoimmune diabetes in the back of your head. 
Cool. So, um, Moni, you want to jump? Want us to jump to the next case? Case number three. We got Miss Eleanor. She's a 74-year-old woman with a history of hypertension and known hyperthyroidism, and she's admitted to the orthopedic surgery service um, because she fell at home and fractured her hip, and ortho's planning on operating um, the next day for her, but they call medicine because they're like, hey, she's got other medical problems. Can you help us with that? So when we were kind of thinking about Miss Eleanor originally when we were writing this case, we were like, hey, surgery, anesthesia, there's something with that with hyperthyroidism. Um, But that was kind of the extent where Moni and I, I think, stopped with uh, our knowledge base. So can we talk through kind of what are like potential triggers we should think about for um, thyroid storm and patients with hyperthyroidism? Yeah. So surgery is one, definitely. Um, And nobody wants to take a patient who has uncontrolled hyperthyroidism into the OR because the risk of thyroid storm is so high, right? We don't want to stress people who are already having something going wrong, like hyperthyroidism, where they could be having tachycardia or AFib or heading into heart failure or things like that. So most surgeons appropriately will not take somebody who has uncontrolled hyperthyroidism into the OR unless it's an emergency, right? They're in thyroid storm and they're not responding to medical therapy and I have no choice but to get the thyroid out. And even then, they're not going to be thrilled about it. They're going to be, you know, talking to you about, this is really high mortality. You know this, right? Are you sure you don't want to do this? Are you sure there's no other medications you can use? Your medicine, surely you have other medications. And so, most surgeons and anesthesiologists are really cognizant of, yeah, you have a history of thyroid disease or you're on methimazole. We want to make sure you're doing really well and that everything is stable before we take you anywhere close to an OR. But again, just like adrenal insufficiency or myxedema, it's any kind of stressor, right? These people are kind of teetering on the edge, teetering on the edge, getting by just barely, and any kind of stressor or insult is going to t- could tip them over into storm. And again, storm, like myxedema coma and adrenal crisis, has really high mortality. And so we'd like to avoid that if possible. I'm assuming you can correct this if this is going to be completely wrong. But in the way we were just talking about myxedema coma, hypothyroidism, essentially don't have enough like thyroid hormone, like thyroid storm is going to be kind of the exact opposite, I presume. Yeah, you're going 75 in a 30 mile per hour zone. And so everything's going too fast, right? You're tachycardic, maybe AFib, you're diaphoretic, you're hyperthermic, um, you may be hypertensive. And so everything is just going too fast. Your GI tract is going too fast. You're having diarrhea. You're losing weight, even though you have a ravenous appetite and you're eating everything in sight. And so, right, that's hyperthyroidism. And then the thyroid storm is where you've been going so fast for so long, everything starts to give out, right? So I'm getting my end organ damage. I'm getting liver failure. Um, I'm getting heart failure. I have AFib with RVR. And so I'm starting to have my end organ dysfunction that is signifying that this is a much bigger issue now. And I need to treat this rapidly. I don't have time to wait anymore. So we were astute. We realized that this is a potential issue, this patient going into surgery. So what do we do to get on top of it before anything bad happens? Yeah. So ideally, we're going to have some time and we're going to 
delay the surgery if we can. Um, maybe not for this lady with a hip fracture. We probably can't delay this for a very long time. Um, and so I'm going to get started with some medications to try to shut off the thyroid production. And so typically that's a thionamide, methimazole or propylthiouracil, commonly called PTU because propylthiouracil is a pain to say. And so I'm going to get started with a thionamide so you can't make thyroid hormone. And if I really need to take this patient into the OR, well, I can actually transiently shut off their thyroid by giving them iodine. So supersaturated potassium iodine or something called Lugol solution are both concentrated iodine. And if I give iodine, I can turn off the thyroid for a short period of time where I've saturated all the receptors, everything shuts down, it's not releasing any thyroid hormone. Now, two or three days after that, it's going to start making a whole bunch of thyroid hormones, so I really need to make sure my, my methimazole is on board already. But if this person really needs to go to the OR, I'm going to give some methimazole, I'm going to give some of this SSKI to shut off their thyroid. It also reduces the vascularity of the thyroid if they're going for like an emergent thyroidectomy or something. But those are going to be my best options to try to get this patient through their surgery safely. Okay, so let's say that we don't know the patient has hyperthyroidism or we just maybe it slipped our mind that, you know, surgery, hyperthyroid, bad. What does that look like? And then what do I do to fix that on the back end? Oh, so it kind of depends, right? This patient may fly through really well, right? If it's a young Graves patient, not Miss Eleanor, who's 74 with a hip fracture, but if it's a young Graves patient, they might come through surgery just fine. But the older you are, the more comorbidities you are, the less you have the ability to compensate, right? So the higher risk you are of something bad happening. And so there's not a great way to predict who if they're going into surgery, is going to end up in thyroid storm. And I am not ever in the OR, so I have never seen this happen. But in talking to some of my ear, nose, and throat colleagues, they've said, you know, the surgery will be going fine, and then all of a sudden the patient is crashing. And it can happen early in the surgery, within the first 30 minutes, or it can happen towards the end when they're getting ready to close up and they thought everything was fine. And so the ENT surgeon I was talking to said hyperthyroidism is one of the things that scares her the most because she doesn't have any way to predict, is this patient going to do fine or is this patient not going to do fine? And there was some data that said thyroid storm happens equally often if the patient is hyperthyroid or euthyroid on their medications, which is terrifying from our perspective because if it happens, even if they're euthyroid on medications, how exactly am I supposed to prevent this from happening? And how am I supposed to best optimize them? And the answer is we don't really know. And so they could fly through. They could do really poorly. Um, and there's not a great way to predict which one they're going to do. We've kind of talked a little bit about, you know, treatment on the back end um, in a situation where a patient has had thyroid storm. And I think this is a running theme and you kind of addressed it in the last case, but can we talk again about steroids? I don't think I've ever talked about steroids so much, to be honest. Yeah, I always find it a little bit uh, ironic for somebody who is always trying to get people off of steroids, how much I talk about how we need to put them on for some people. So, all right. So we're talking about our patient has had this 
terribleness happened in the OR. They've gone into storm. They're having the signs of end organ damage. They're not doing well. We're giving them medications. Um, and we talked about methimazole and SSKI before to try to minimize risk. But after, when we've kind of hit the fan, and we're doing more often PTU now. And so I'm going to give PTU. I'm going to keep going with my iodine. And then I do have to give my glucocorticoids again. And again, we're going with my stress dosing glucocorticoids saying, you know, again, storm hyperthyroidism, autoimmune disease, most commonly for many people, Graves disease. And so I'm worried that there could be a component of adrenal insufficiency going on here. And I want to make sure I'm not going to precipitate an adrenal crisis. So I'm going to give my IV hydrocortisone again. It also gives me an extra benefit because hydrocortisone inhibits T4's conversion to T3 in the periphery. So it helps decrease the amount of active thyroid hormone I have floating around in the blood, causing me problems. And in that same vein, I'm also going to want to be giving a beta blocker. And so the recommendation is for esmolol or propranolol. Propranolol is probably what's most commonly used in the U.S. And so I'm going to be giving propranolol to slow down the heart rate or help with the AFib and keep them rate controlled. But it also inhibits peripheral conversion of T4 to T3. And so I'm reducing my active hormone with propranolol as well. And so uh, endocrine has a garbage mnemonic for this called the five B's which is the worst mnemonic I've ever heard because literally each one of the Bs is block. And so it doesn't help you in any way, shape, or form. And so it's block synthesis with your thionamides, block peripheral conversion with glucocorticoids, block peripheral conversion with beta blockade, um, block release with iodine, and maybe block hepatic circulation with cholesterol, but that's not so much used anymore. But it's a terrible mnemonic. But whenever you talk to any endocrinologist, they'll be like, oh, the five Bs. And you're like, it's just block. They're, they're all block. <laughs> yeah. So I, I have a soapbox on that mnemonic. I, it drives me crazy. But yeah, they're getting glucocorticoids too. And so they're getting the same, they're getting a stress dose, just like we're giving for myxedema coma and adrenal crisis, just to make sure that we're covering our bases. And is there any other supportive care to like provide them? Because at least the beta blocker feels like that's definitely within my realm that I would feel more comfortable with. You know, the others, I'm definitely just asking endo to help me with dosing and things like that. But are there in the way that there are fluids for like adrenal insufficiency? Are there things like that we should think about? So if they're really hyperthermic, right, things like aggressive cooling um, can be used. But Again, I'm not sure how much that would be you pulling that trigger versus me pulling that trigger versus us looking at each other and being like, what do you think? Should we cool this guy? Uh, sure, let's give it a try. It's not going to hurt anything. Um, but that would be maybe the other thing that I would think about is depending on how hyperthermic they are, you might need to aggressively cool this person. Um, and you might end up giving your beta blocker as a drip instead of like a PO medication just so that you can control it more readily and you can go up and down much more easily as they're improving. You can start backing off faster. Um, but I think a lot of the time it's mostly endocrine sitting over there running the show saying, no, yeah, we're going to keep going with this for a few more days or, oh no, I think they're a little bit better. We can maybe talk about switching back or cutting back on our doses or weaning off. 
Um, but yeah, I think those are the big things. And how long until you would see improvement in these? I'm assuming it's the same as the other cases, but. This one's actually got some data behind it. So they should approve within 24 to 48 hours. And if they're not improving with our therapies in two to at 48 hours, they need something better. And so whether that's a thyroidectomy or plasmapheresis, but if these medications aren't working at 48 hours, you have to do something else because they're now extremely high risk of mortality and you need to do something. And so the surgeons are going to want you to do plasmapheresis. You're going to be running down to talk with your colleagues about plasmapheresis. And they're going to be like, I've never plasmapheresed for thyroid storm because most of us have never plasmapheresed for thyroid storm. And so you're all going to be kind of chewing your fingernails, watching this patient very nervously um, while you figure out is plasmapheresis going to work or are they going to have to go to the OR because they're high risk of death without going and they're high risk of death with going and I've got to do something. So when you get to that 48 hour time point, I would think that like time is just kind of of the utmost importance also for the patient. And so, and often when I think of plasmapheresis, I think of that as just usually like a little bit more logistics have to go into it than how I think of maybe the patient going to the OR. And so does that play into the decision at all? Honestly, this has not been a point that I've had to get to. Usually if I'm hitting that 24-hour mark and I'm thinking about something, I've already got my ENT surgeon that I've talked to and I've already gone down and um, talked with my nephrologist who's going to be doing my plasmapheresis for me. And we've all kind of sat there and been like, not me, not me, not me, because um, Nobody wants to do any of these things because they're scary and um, really high risk. And fortunately, our patients have always kind of turned around by that 48-hour mark, and we haven't had to go ahead with plasmapheresis. But I'd say it is something where you wanted to involve your consultants early to say, hey, I have this really sick patient, and they may very well end up needing plasmapheresis or a thyroidectomy. And so I'd rather you get on board sooner so that if we need to pull the trigger on this, there's no delays. It's not a, you're not in the hospital. You've never heard anything about this patient. You're going to come see them tomorrow kind of situation. It's a, we've already talked about this um, and we've already got a plan for what we're going to do. So I'm usually getting people involved sooner rather than later. Yeah, I think that's helpful, especially for this scenario where like the time frame is so clear. Um, helpful to like know that even within 24 hours, if you're not seeing improvement to maybe start getting the ball rolling um, and expecting some of those things that might be logistically more challenging. I think that, I don't know, at least as a hospitalist, I feel like that's my one role is to make sure logistics happen in the hospital. <laughs> and so that's like, I think really helpful to know. Sticking with Miss Eleanor, let's say she got better within her like 48 hours. How do you now start thinking about transitioning her out of kind of that scary time into the rest of her hospital stay as well as to home? Yeah, so that's usually a taper of the PTU and a switch over to methamazole. And it's a pretty easy switch. 10 milligrams of methamazole is 100 of PTU. And so you're trying to get them over to methamazole for kind of long-term as outpatient because it has much less risks than the PTU does with the PTU having risks of liver injury. And so you're getting them switched over. Um, you're 
trying to make sure that you have their heart rate down under 90, and then you're going to switch your beta blocker to some kind of XL beta blocker to try to improve adherence. And typically, they're going to go on the methimazole and the extended release beta blocker, and they're going to have rapid follow-up because they're gonna, their levels are going to start dropping. And I don't want to end up with somebody floridly overtreated who has a TSH of 200. And so they're going to have rapid follow-up in endocrine clinics so that we can make sure we're backing off on their doses appropriately and that we're not over-treating them and that we're not making them bradycardic and they're walking around with a heart rate of 40 and they needed their propranolol dose halved. And so they're going to see me typically within four weeks after they leave. So it would be the same time, like, cause I, I always think of thyroid as like recheck it in four to six weeks. Um, like it's kind of my reflex. So it would be the same sort of timeline almost. It's still that four to six weeks, I guess. Uh, typically that's when I have them follow up, um, is four to six weeks. And I've kind of been keeping an eye on the free T4 while they're in the hospital so that I know that they're trending in the right direction. And usually that's soon enough that I haven't tipped somebody over into florid hypothyroidism, although I can't say that's never happened. Um, but usually that's a pretty good time frame um, to be able to see them back and keep tweaking their medications. And let's say they were seeing their primary care, they got follow-up like within a week. It's Is it worthwhile to check like thyroid again that soon or would you almost always wait the four weeks to see? They're, they're going to freak out. Um, so it happens not infrequently that that happens uh, at their post-discharge visit, visit. Somebody gets full TFTs and then they're calling me going, you need to see this patient right now. And it's a, no, no, I know their levels don't normalize overnight. We have them on medication. Are they having new symptoms? No. Great. Okay. So they're just going to come back and they're going to see me and they have my number or my contact information to get in touch with me if they start having symptoms again. Um, but right now, this is just their levels haven't been shut down for long enough, right? We haven't blocked production with the thionamide for long enough. This is still the levo or the thyroxine they had in their system. It's going to take a minute for that to come down. And so don't don't ever check the TFTs within a week of hospital discharge. That hospital discharge follow-up, TFTs should be disallowed. They should not be allowed to be clicked um, because you're just going to forget about them. Even if it was something like recovery from non-thyroidal illness, right? It's going to look wonky and then you're somebody's going to freak out about it. So no TFTs at the hospital discharge follow-up. What anticipatory guidance would you give? So that one's hard, right? Because a lot of things that trigger thyroid storm, we don't have great information for who's going to get triggered or who's not, right? We know infection increases your risk, surgery increases your risk, but I don't have great ways to predict for this. So a lot of the times, if I have somebody who's had thyroid storm, we're talking about definitive therapy because I'm not playing this game with you. We're not going to play around with methimazole and getting your levels knocked out. No, we're just going to definitively treat you because you're not going into thyroid storm again. And so we'll talk about radioactive iodine versus a thyroidectomy when their euthyroid is an outpatient. But this isn't a, this is one of those times that I'm very clear that I'm not okay with continuing to prescribe methamazole long term. You were really sick. You were critically ill. You could have died. And we don't ever want this to happen again. And so we're going to do definitive therapy to make sure that it doesn't happen. And for the most part, people are like, yeah, no, I never want to go through that either. I'm 100% on board with this plan. You take, you do what you have to do. And so uh, it's, it works out well for the most part. Occasionally, you'll get somebody who's 
wanting to be very holistic and natural and doesn't like the idea of taking thyroid hormone replacement. And that's just a conversation of you're going to be taking something either way. And hypothyroidism is much safer than hyperthyroidism. And so if we have to pick a poison, let's pick the one that's much safer and is less likely to kill you. We didn't touch on one thing for thyroid storm, um, maybe deliberately on my part, but that would be the Birch-Wartofsky score that I always get quoted when people call me for thyroid storm and they'll be like, their Birch-Wartofsky score is 45. And this is a scoring system that just gives you points for different signs of thyroid storm. So like tachycardia and hyperthermia and altered mental status, um, AFib, any nausea or vomiting or abdominal pain. And I tell people I meet criteria for thyroid storm when I walk up two flights of stairs at the hospital. And so it's not specific. It doesn't tell you that, yes, this is 100% thyroid storm. It tells you this could maybe be a thyroid storm. And so it's not something to hang your hat on in the diagnosis. So it's good for helping you think about the end organ damage that you're looking for with thyroid storm. But just because they have those things does not mean that they're in storm, right? Like I said, I, I meet those numbers by going upstairs. So it's something to take and use with a grain of salt if you're going to be using a scoring system, system for thyroid storm. I actually think Meredith and I looked at that when we were reading and literally said the same thing, which is pretty easy to get those points and seems maybe not the best uh, tool in this, in really any situation. So Um, everybody it's right. It's in the scoring systems that people look at when they search for thyroid storm. And so everybody wants to calculate it, but it's just a keep in mind. It doesn't mean that they actually have thyroid storm. It just means it should be on your differential. Yeah, I think it's a, I think where it's valuable is like making sure you're having it kind of in your differential and like thinking about it because it's like a can't miss diagnosis. But yeah, I think I was on service and looked at my list and I was like, 70% of my patients meet this criteria today. Like this isn't actually like as helpful in that scenario. And I think they did a study that looked at scoring people with that score and found that it called thyroid storm in 20% too often. And I was looking at that study and I was like, I think your study is flawed because I'm pretty sure it calls it far more often than just 20% too often. Um, all right. So Moni, you want to um, jump into a recap of some thyroid storm? To recap, when you think about patients with thyroid storm or have a history of hyperthyroidism, specifically in situations with surgery, it's really important to be on top of it ahead of time and generally done with PTU, methamazole, iodine. Um, and then on the back end, if you happen to maybe not put all that together, it's really important to make sure that you're engaging all the appropriate consultants, obviously endocrinology, and in the situation where a patient you know, doesn't improve with treatment within 48 hours, they would potentially need something like a thyroidectomy or plasmapheresis, so getting all those folks on board. And then you know, one of the things that I also found interesting is um, I think the running theme for all of these is that there's just like clinical diagnosis, a whole heck of a lot more important than a scoring system or a lab or any of that. And I feel like that rang true all the way through capping it off with the birch Wartofsky score. Anything else, Meredith? No, I think you nailed it. 
Um, so Sarah, do you have any, do you want to go through some take home points that you want to make sure all the listeners got? Yeah. So I think the biggest thing is looking at your patient, right? Because none of these, you can hang your hat on, on lab diagnoses and so, or biochemical findings. And so it's a, if your patient looks well, they probably don't have one of these, but if your patient looks sick, they very well might. And it's better to hedge your horse to hedge your bet and say, let's treat them like they do rather than miss one of these diagnoses because the mortality rate is so high. So it, again, patient looks well. I don't care that their TSH is 200. They're not in mixed edema coma. But you could have somebody who went into mixed edema coma with a TSH that's pretty close to the normal, right? It just depends on their ability to compensate and what other comorbidities they have. And so it really depends on how your patient looks. But if these are running through your brain, it's always safer to treat than not. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com and sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. We're committed to high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or email us at askcurbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Meredith and I really enjoyed putting this episode together with our whole team. The Curbsiders is produced and edited by the team at Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media. Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. I've been Moni Amin. And as always, I've been Dr. Meredith Elizabeth Trubit. Thank you and good night. <laughs>